0: Well, it didn't take long for the Atlanta Fed to already reduce its inflated forecast for Q2 GDP. Remember, they initially came out with their first estimate of 4.3% growth in the second quarter, following the dismal 0.7% that was initially released for the first quarter, My guess is still that they're going to end up lowering that estimate as more economic data comes in. Nonetheless, the Atlanta Fed boldly came out with 4.3% for Q2. Now, already earlier this week, they have reduced that estimate to 3.6%. That was their first downward revision. I think it's going to be the first of many. Remember, we did this exact same dance last quarter where the Atlanta Fed starts real high, and then as more and more data comes in that's weaker, they keep uh, notching down the estimate. It's like a a limbo, a a GDP forecasting limbo. The question is, how low can the bar go? Remember, I mentioned, I think on my last video blog, that the New York Fed is already down to 1.8% for Q2. So the Atlanta Fed has a long way to go to catch up. To where the New York Fed already is. Now, they're going to have a chance uh, to close the distance a little bit on Friday because that is the next update to the GDP estimates. And that's when we're going to be getting the retail sales numbers, which my guess is it will continue the trend and those sales will be less than expected. In fact, we already got some news today that should weigh on second quarter GDP, and that is import export prices for the month of April. This is important because obviously what we pay for our imports and what we get for our exports is going to be a big determinant of the trade deficit. And this is especially important because obviously we import a lot more than we export. So the import price is probably more uh, important. And import prices jumped in the month of, of April by a half a percent. And in fact, they even revised... Upward, the decline that was originally reported for March of minus 0.2, that was revised to up 0.1. So we were up instead of down last month, and we had a huge jump in April uh, by 0.5. In contrast, the exports went the other way. The export prices were originally reported as up 0.2 for a March, that was revised down to just up 0.1, and export prices were up 0.2. So the price of the stuff we buy went up a lot more than the price of the stuff we sell, and so that means the trade deficit is going to be bigger, and that also means that the trade deficit is going to be bigger, particularly because, as I said, we import a lot more than we export. So this is going to weigh on GDP if the trade deficit is, in fact, larger. Because remember, the trade deficit is a subtraction from GDP. So whatever the GDP number is, we have to subtract from that number the value of the trade deficit to get the actual number. And so this, again, is another reason that I think that we're gonna to continue to be moving down. Now, you know, despite the weak economic data that has come out, that has resulted in these downward revisions, the dollar has actually strengthened. And I think the reason for that is the buy the rumor, sell the fact with respect to the outcome of the French elections. The Euro had already rallied uh, in advance of that. And I do think there was some profit taking on the, the outcome, which was anticipated in advance. But I think the fact that the dollar is not getting more traction from the near certainty now of a June rate hike and the pervasive optimism that permeates the country, the fact that the dollar is not riding this wave of optimism to new highs, despite what's going on with elections in Europe, is indicative to me that the markets are starting to figure this out. The markets are starting to look beyond the hikes. However many more there are, whether the Fed hikes rates in June or not, or whether it hikes wakes again, these rate hikes, as I've said repeatedly, are too little too late to mean anything. Meanwhile, the economy is headed for recession. In fact, I think Wilbur Ross finally came out today uh, and and admitted that um, the U.S. GDP is not going to grow at 3% this year. I mean, that's why they pay this guy the big bucks, right? I mean, you, you don't need to have that much Uh, information. You don't need to be that smart to figure out something that's that obvious. But they finally admitted that the economy is not going to grow by 3% this year. In fact, it may even be in a recession this year. So it's not only not going to grow by 3%, it may not grow at all if we're in a recession. But of course, the Trump administration is continuing to pretend that, well, you know, once we pass all of our legislation, once we get all of our players on board, once we get tax reform, once we replace Obamacare, once we get infrastructure, once we do all this stuff, well, then we're going to get all this growth. Well, first of all, they're probably not going to get all that stuff until we have a recession. The recession will be the catalyst for some type of stimulus, right? Some kind of tax cuts and and increased government spending. And in fact, I think what happened now with, you know, firing uh, Comey is probably going to delay this even more, as now the president has to be on a defensive to explain you know, why he did that. And now, of course, the Democrats now who used to hate Comey, now they love him again. All of a sudden, it's a big, you know, Watergate-style cover-up because, oh, you know, what well, he, well, he was obviously, he was investigating, he was on to something, he was looking into the situation with Russia, and now he's been dismissed. Oh, well, we need a special prosecutor now. This could blow out of proportion. This is going to further disrupt the ability to get stuff done. But nobody seems to be questioning the fact that so much, Uh, Of the hype associated with the rally that resulted from the Trump victory is actually uh, going to come to pass. But even given all that, given the stock market at the highs, given the optimism and and, and the confidence, the dollar is not making new highs. And I think uh, the dollar is going to go back down after we get this small bump uh, as a result of the buy the rumor, sell the fact from the uh, the elections now, gold also has sold off. You remember the last time I was talking, I thought gold looked really good short term on a chart. I thought it looked like it was going to go up to thirteen hundred instead, it went the opposite way. It went down towards twelve hundred although it didn 't get that low, and as I record this it 's just below twelve twenty but you know it shows you that you know technical analysis doesn 't always work right? You know, you're not just going to automatically get rich because you're looking at a chart, you know, and of course, it's a probability. So if something looks like it might go up, it doesn't mean it's a lock. It just I just thought it was more probable that gold looked good on a chart. And so it would go up. And I thought the weak economic data would be a catalyst. We got the weak economic data, uh, but gold went down anyway. Now, it still to me looks like it's holding on to some uh, key support. And I think one of the problems again in the gold market is the sentiment looking at the gold stocks again continuing to weigh the divergence the gold stocks did not participate in the new high uh, that bullion made you know, gold stocks recovered some of their decline but they didn't get back to where they were gold meanwhile made new highs for the year gold is still doing well this year it's still beating the u.s stock market uh, considerably this year as is just about every other market in the world. I mean, the outperformance that I've been talking about so far this year between foreign developed markets and especially emerging markets uh, is widening, continuing to gain on the U.S. market. But retail U.S. investors, even including Euro-Pacific capital clients, uh, are, you know, still haven't figured this out. Now, some of the more sophisticated money seems to already be flowing out of U.S. assets into these foreign assets as some of the dumber money um the retail money seems to be jumping on the uh, the u.s stock market at record high valuations simply out of optimism and particularly and again i mentioned this in the case of some Euro pacific capital clients people who were so worried about the u.s economy because of uh president obama now all of a sudden obama's gone trump is here and they're not worried anymore they think that all the problems that were created during eight years of Obama are going to just be solved uh, in one one year of Trump. And so now all the fears that led them maybe to invest internationally and seek me out, they're gone. And now they're piling back into the U.S. stock market like lemmings about to go over the edge of a cliff. You know, we're experiencing the same thing in gold sales. You know, a lot of people who have been buying gold uh, over the last eight years have been Republicans who were worried about the economy under Barack Obama. Now, they were right to be worried, and they were right to buy gold. But during the last few years, the price of gold has gone down. But obviously, it's gone up since the day Trump was inaugurated, and there were plenty of opportunities for people to trade out with profits. But even you know, if you didn't do that, if you bought the day he was inaugurated, you're still ahead. But if you waited a little while and then bought into the huge rally, right, which some people did, Um, And now you're selling now. I mean, you're going to have a loss. But the fact is, you have a lot of these Republicans who are now confident in the economy, confident in the markets, right, the dollar. And so they don't feel that they need to buy gold anymore. They just want to buy stocks. Right. They bought gold because they were worried. They were worried about inflation. They were worried about uh, the economy down. Uh, Who knows what they were worried about? Right? And because they were worried about a number of things, they were buying gold. Now they're not worried about anything. They think everything is great, and so they want to buy stocks. They don't want to buy gold. And so we're seeing a reduction in demand. I mean, I was talking to the guys over at Shift Gold, and we had a substantial decline in gold sales for the first quarter. It was a big reduction over the same amount of gold that we sold in the first quarter of last year, despite the fact that the gold price had a very, very good quarter. But Americans don't really care about that. That's not what they're looking at, right? The the typical gold customer, again, you know, is listening to conservative talk radio. And now there's probably a lot of optimism on conservative talk radio now that President Trump has replaced President Obama. I mean, the good news, at least for me at Shift Gold, is talking to our wholesalers that the decline that we've seen has been smaller, significantly smaller than the decline that our competitors have experienced so shift gold continues to gain market share as we have been uh, over the past many years ever since we started we've been growing our market share even as overall sales have been declining because of the change of sentiment among the american buyers now of course worldwide this is not happening right people who are buying Gold in China couldn't care less whether it's President Obama or President Trump. They're still buying gold. This is strictly an American phenomenon. But most of my customers, right, the people who buy gold from ship gold, they live in America. And again, most of them are Republicans. Most of them probably voted for Trump. And they're feeling pretty good about their vote. They're thinking things are going to get better. Now, they're in for a rude awakening, whether it's six months from now, a year from now, when the reality doesn't live up to the hype of the fantasy and the gold's price starts breaking out again and gold is 1500 or $1,600, whatever it is, then, of course, a lot of the people are going to come back into the market and start buying more gold. But this is just something that I have been observing. Now, of course, one asset, and of course, this is where I'm going to start to generate a lot of thumbs down on this video, is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the one asset that has just continued to rise, at least, you know, as a, if people want to look at it as a monetary hedge, right? Uh, Bitcoin, as I talk, is, you know, trading between $1,700 and $1,800 per Bitcoin. Right now, as I happen to be recording it, it's 1765 And this is near an all-time record high. In fact, remember when I was talking about it not too long ago, when it first got above the price of gold. Uh, it got a lot of hype in the media, and then it kind of pulled back a little bit. Well, look at it now. I mean, gold is 1220 and Bitcoin is 1765 I mean, now Bitcoin is miles ahead of the price of gold. But, of course, the price of gold is irrelevant to a price of, the bit, of a Bitcoin because they're, you're comparing apples and oranges. It made good, I guess, talking points in the media to point this out, but it really was an irrelevant statistic, but obviously, what is relevant is the total market cap of all the Bitcoins out there, which is now almost $29 billion, uh, closing in on $30 billion. Now, I know a lot of people who like to thumbs down my videos want to say, aha, you see, Peter Schiff, we told you, look, Bitcoin is going up, right? You said don't buy it. You said it's a bubble. And look, it's 1760 right? Last time you were talking about not buying it, it was, you know, 1200 wherever it was. And you know what, just because a bubble gets bigger doesn't mean it's not a bubble. So, and I've always said, I don't know how high Bitcoin is going to go. It can go to 17,000 for all I know. I've said that before. I have no idea how high it's going to go before it collapses. But it's going to collapse. And maybe it's going to go to zero. Now, can it go to 10,000 or 20,000 or even 100,000 before it goes to zero? I suppose I mean, anything is possible. I mean, because $1,700 for a Bitcoin makes no sense. Right? And it, you know, so if, if it can be $1,700, it can be 17000 What difference does it make? There is no logic to the price. This is just a mania. I mean, what were tulips worth when they were trading tulip bulbs in Holland? It didn't matter. They went through the roof until they came crashing down. Now, did people make money trading tulip bulbs in, in Holland? Yeah, they did. But a lot more people lost a lot of money. Same thing's going to happen with Bitcoin. Yeah, some people are going to make money. Some people have made money. And some people will make money. But a lot of people are going to lose money. You know, it reminds me of uh, the Clint Eastwood movie, you know. Do you feel lucky, right? Well, do you, punk? I mean, if you feel lucky, you can buy yourself some Bitcoins. And maybe you'll get out before the music stops. I don't know. I just don't like to encourage people to participate in a bubble just based on the fact that they may be able to get out before the bubble pops. But hey, if you're a gambler and you want to try to judge the risk-reward, especially if you take profits on the way up, I mean, the best way to trade Bitcoin is to trade it. And you know, yes, obviously, if you just bought and never sold, yes, you have greater profits than people who bought some a while ago and then took money off the table. But the concept of taking money off the table means... Eventually, if you take enough money off the table, you don't have any money on the table. It's all the house's money. And once you're playing with the house's money, well, then you can gamble. Because then if you lose the house's money, it's no big deal. So if you're going to get into Bitcoin and you're going to buy it, which I'm not encouraging you to do, but if you're going to buy it and it goes up, you got to sell. Do you sell it all? You don't have to sell it all. Just sell some. And you got to keep lightening up so that eventually... You get your money off the table. Then, all right, you want to take a free ride and see what happens with a profit. OK, you know, you could take a you can you can see what happens. But the risk that you take is that you buy now and it just goes straight down. Right. It, this may be the top. Right. Now, it's probably not. Right. Because the bubble's probably going to get bigger. I mean, how many times did it look like the Nasdaq bubble? The tech bubble was at its peak in 1999, 2000. It looked like it many times before it finally happened. Right. So you never know. You can never tell the difference. Uh, know when a bubble is at its peak, but I think I do know a bubble when I see one and this is a bubble if I've ever seen one and you know I don't want to get into it again because I've explained before why I don't think Bitcoin works as money right and so why it's not going to be a viable currency but the very fact that it's this volatile even is more proof look Bitcoin again it's seventeen sixty five right now Where's it going to be next week? Could it be at 2000 Sure. Could it be at 1500 Sure. I mean, I don't think anybody would argue with me that it's possible that Bitcoin could be $2,000 next week or $1,500 next week. Given the fact that there's that much volatility, how can it be money? How can you hold on to it for purchases? Because the, the value can swing so wildly, money needs to be a reliable store of value so you can spend it. But more importantly so you can contract in it. What if I want to borrow money or loan money? How am I going to do that in Bitcoin? How am I going to borrow Bitcoin from somebody? What are they going to be worth when I pay them back? I mean, there's enormous unknowns to both the borrower and the lender if you do a loan in Bitcoin. What about just a contract? What if I want to pay for something that I'm going to get delivered in six months through a year? Can I contract to pay for that in Bitcoin? How can I do that? I mean, nobody knows what the Bitcoin is going to be worth. So how do you have a long-term contract? I mean, you could end up losing a fortune. You don't know. I mean, what about employment? Are you going to accept a job you know, where your salary is a fixed number of Bitcoins? I mean, that's hard to do because what if Bitcoin goes down and now you know your rent's not in Bitcoin? So if Bitcoin goes down, you're working for next to nothing. Or am I going to be an employer? Am I going to hire somebody and, and pay them in Bitcoin when I don't really know what the Bitcoins are going to cost? In the future when i pay the salary maybe i end up paying a lot more than the 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 labor is worth that i'm trying to buy so you can't enter into long-term employment contracts you can't enter into into loans into purchase agreements you can't even have savings that you're just going to spend because the volatility is just too great and you know the higher the price of bitcoin goes the greater is the likely volatility you know because the higher it rises the more it can drop i mean obviously right i mean what if what if bitcoin just doubled tomorrow doesn't that mean it could get cut in half the day after? Sure, right? Now, someone's going to say, well, what difference does it made? Because the trend is up. Well, the trend may not stay up, right? The trend of all bubbles is up. That's the nature of bubbles until it bursts. You know, why are prices of Bitcoin rising? Is it because people want to use the Bitcoins in everyday commerce? No, that's not why they're rising. People are buying it because it's going up. That's why they're buying it. And it's going up because people are buying it. And because it's going up, more people want to buy it. It just feeds on itself. But also, it's the sellers. Where are the sellers? They don't want to sell. Why would they want to sell? I'll sell later when it's higher. So when the market's going up and you have this kind of expectation, the sellers don't want to sell. The buyers want more. So the price keeps going up. This is a dynamic. When is it going to stop? When everybody wants out. But what happens when everybody wants out? Who wants in? Nobody. And the bottom drops out because ultimately there's no real value supporting the mania. This is no different than the tulip mania, right? It's, it's tulips uh, 2.0. And again, right, everybody's going to criticize me. Look, this is what I believe. And I believe that I'm going to be right. In the meantime, the price is going to go up until I'm proven right. And yes, people are going to make money on paper. Some people will make money in actuality because they will do the smart thing and they will cash out. But I tell you this, that a lot more people are going to lose a lot more money when this party ends. I mean, how many people do you know that made money in the dot-com market? You know, most people lost money. There are some people that made lots of money. There are some people that made fortunes. But the vast majority of people who got into the dot-coms lost money. Now, obviously, look, hey, if you bought the right ones, look where Amazon is today, right? You could have bought Amazon and just held that and made a fortune. And there's a few others that, but there's, for every Amazon, there was 10 of them or a hundred of them that went bankrupt, right? But yeah, if you bought a handful of them and held them the whole time, but again, you know, there's a real business there. I mean, even though Amazon is still losing money, you know, they still have tremendous sales and there still is the potential that they're going to figure out how to uh, you know, do this profitably and they've got so many other things they're doing now more than just retailing uh, online. I mean, so there's a lot of potential that I can see people are betting on when it comes to when it comes to Amazon, what whether or not everything that it's doing today will ultimately be worth the price that people are paying. I, I mean, I kind of have my doubts. I mean, I think it's going to be a successful company, but I don't believe it will be as successful as people believe because the one thing that success ensures in a free market system is competition, right? Because when you start making a lot of money, other people want a piece of your action. And and so ultimately, there are going to be competitors. There are going to be more competitors that are going to come out and that are going to get into this space. And yes, Amazon has a huge lead. But, you know, there have been a lot of companies that have had huge leads and then somebody else catches up. Somebody else figures out how to do it better. They do it cheaper or they start chipping away at your market. And, And so I think a lot of that is ultimately going to happen, right? There is a lot of high hopes and expectations built in to that company. But my main point about even going back into the dot coms was ultimately what happened to the vast majority of investors who for a while had huge paper profits, but then in the end, you know, watched those profits vanish and in many cases turn into losses. I think the same thing is going to happen to Bitcoin, no matter how high Bitcoin goes before it collapses. And the irony of it is the higher it goes before it collapses, the more money people will lose and the more people who will lose money. So to the extent that it just stops now and go straight down, that will save a lot of people from losing even more money in the future who get suckered into the mania. Now, on the other hand, gold, as I mentioned, that's what people should be buying. And in fact, maybe some of the people who would normally be buying gold because it's not going up, they have been distracted by what's going on with Bitcoin. And so they're buying Bitcoin instead. Maybe Bitcoin as well is stealing some of gold's thunder. But if you're smart, you're going to be buying gold. And again, If you want to have money that you can use in commerce, that you can use as a medium of exchange, where you can have contracts in gold, where you can be paid for services in gold and be paid for goods in gold, then open up an account at gold money. Gold money is the answer. It solves all of the problems that Bitcoin tries to solve but can't. Ultimately, the only thing Bitcoin is, is a speculative asset. It's something that people buy because they think they're going to get rich. But gold is something that you can buy to prevent yourself from becoming poor. And in the meantime, you can use the purchasing power that you're preserving to engage in real contracts, in real commerce, in a reliable money with a historically proven uh, store of value that on a day-to-day basis has relatively low volatility. Uh, with respect to other currencies or other commodities. So again, if you don't already have your gold money account, open one up today. Go to goldmoney.com and open up a free account. They'll even give you a little free gold. You're buying your gold at just 0.25% or rather, excuse me, 0.5% over spot, a half a percent over spot. They'll give you a free debit card to the extent that you want to uh, you know, use your gold in in commerce with a debit card. And the person who's you know, on the other side of the transaction doesn't want your gold. They want to get paid in traditional fiat money. Well, you have a way of doing that by converting your gold to fiat by using your debit card. But I think more and more uh, you're going to find more and more merchants that want your gold. They don't want they're not going to want the paper. They're going to want to be paid in real money and they're going to want you to pay them using your gold money account where you directly transfer your gold to their account uh, in exchange for their services. And again, more importantly, If you're a listener to this podcast and you have a small business, if you are selling something, whether it's products or services, and if you want to be paid in gold, then set up a gold money account and you can get paid in gold. In fact, even your customers that don't have gold can pay you in gold without actually buying it themselves. All of that is possible through the gold money uh, application, the gold money website. But of course, The best way for your customers to pay you in gold is to have the gold so your customers can open up gold money accounts and they can start earning gold themselves so they can spend the gold that they earn and everybody can start transacting completely outside of the U.S. banking system, completely outside the U.S. dollar, yet be able to transact even more efficiently and conveniently than if they were still in the U.S. banking system and the U.S. dollar. Final thoughts in this podcast. I do want to talk a little bit about Obamacare, repeal and replace, because, you know, I'm starting to read articles, particularly one I read today, that is trying to blame the fact that there's all this uncertainty over repealing Obamacare with the fact that premiums are skyrocketing, right? They're saying, oh, you know, the insurance companies are uncertain as to Obamacare's future. And and so as a result of this, they're really jacking up the premiums. I mean, this is all a bunch of media spin. The premiums have been going up for years. And they're going to continue to go up whether or not Obamacare is repealed, because if it's repealed and replaced with what the Republicans got, then insurance rates are going to keep going up for the same moral hazard that we have now. In fact, the moral hazard may, in fact, end up even bigger to the extent that we get a Republican replacement bill that is actually passed. You know, this article that I read, it did point out that the reason that rates are going up is because fewer healthy people are buying insurance. And therefore, the people who are buying are sicker and putting in more claims. And so they're more expensive to insure. And therefore, the insurance companies have to raise their rates. Duh. I mean, this is what I said in the very beginning was going to happen. In fact, I even pointed out in an article that I wrote and on this podcast that even the Supreme Court, even though they're dumb when it comes to the Constitution, at least they were smart when it comes to moral hazard and economics. The only way the Supreme Court, in their mind, uh, justified the constitutionality of Obamacare, and I still think they were wrong. See, they called, the, they called the the penalty a tax. And they said, as a tax, it's constitutional. I think they were wrong. As a tax, it's still unconstitutional because it's a direct tax and it needed to be apportioned. But forgetting about that, because they've been bad on apportionment over there at the Supreme Court for a long time, ever since really the Pollock case. But if you want to look at what they said They said that they still believe that the government cannot penalize you for not doing something. They can't fine you for not buying a product. But they pointed out that since the penalties, in quotes, for not buying insurance were so low that they wouldn't actually compel anybody to buy the product, that people would just pay the penalty as a tax. And so therefore it was a tax, not a penalty, because it was so low that nobody would actually feel forced to buy insurance. They would just pay this tax for not having insurance. And the Supreme Court was right. And I pointed this out, that this is why it wasn't going to work. You know, nobody wants to level with the American public on uh, pre-existing conditions. In fact, you know, the Republicans, when they you know campaign or when they go stumping around about health care, the one thing that everybody hates about Obamacare is that the government requires you to buy insurance. But the one thing that everybody loves is that the insurance companies can't deny coverage based on pre-existing conditions. Well, those two have to go hand in hand. If you want to make it illegal for the insurance companies to deny coverage based on pre-existing conditions, then you have to force everybody to buy insurance. Otherwise, nobody will. The problem with Obamacare is the penalty tax for not buying insurance was too low. So if you really want to make sure that Obamacare works, what you'd have to do is dramatically increase the penalties on those people who don't buy insurance. But nobody wants to do that. That's a political time bomb. I mean, even Obama, nobody wants to have that penalty high. And in fact, if they made it high enough to actually make it work, then it would be unconstitutional according to the Supreme Court. In fact, I mentioned this on my podcast. The moral hazard is even greater under the Republican version than it was under the Democrat version. Because under the Democrat version, I think that you can only buy your insurance during the enrollment period. And, and so what would happen is, let's say you got really sick and then you needed insurance. Well, if the enrollment period didn't hit, you still had that gap, right, between the time you got sick and the time you can buy your insurance. Now, you know, so maybe the hospitals would still take care of you and then you would get the insurance later and you'd be able to pay the bills. But there was still that potential risk. But with the Republican plan, it doesn't work that way. You could just go to an insurance company, whatever you want, and buy a policy no matter how sick you are. And the only thing they can do is make you pay a 30% premium to what a healthy person could pay would pay, and only for the first year of your coverage. Then after the first year, your rates go back down to what every other healthy person is paying. So in other words, it's actually easier. There's a greater financial incentive not to buy insurance under the Republican replacement plan than there was under the original plan for Obamacare, which means that insurance costs would rise even faster because the moral hazard is even greater. Now, supposedly, the Tea Party got them to put in this thing in there where the states can ask for some kind of waiver, which means every state has to ask for a waiver. But I don't know how easy it will be to get the waivers, and whether that position is even going to be in there when it comes out of the Senate, which means maybe the House won't even vote for it. Who knows? But maybe they will anyway because of the politics. But the way it was originally proposed, it's worse than Obamacare when it comes to the incentives. And if you want insurance companies to not be able to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, charge them more money or deny them coverage, then what you're saying is you want health insurance to be extremely expensive because the way it's being sold to the public, it's not insurance. And if this continues, right, because what happens is more and more healthy people do the math and realize they're suckers for buying insurance when they can just wait till they get sick and just pay a tiny penalty, And uh, they can buy the insurance anyway. So as more healthy people make the rational choice not to buy, those people who are still buying have bigger and bigger increases in their premium. And now as the premiums get higher and higher and insurance gets more and more expensive, that's a greater incentive for those people who are still buying the insurance to drop out. And so eventually, no healthy people buy insurance. So insurance basically is only purchased by people who are really sick. And they need medical care, which means it's not health insurance. It's just medical care. You're just paying for your medical care, except you're trying to pay a small amount and force the insurance companies to pay a large amount. Well, they can't do that and stay in business. So the the price has to skyrocket. So basically, instead of paying the doctors and the hospitals, you just pay the insurance companies who turn around and pay the hospitals and the doctors. So the, the, the cost has to skyrocket. So the whole insurance industry has to collapse until government uh, levels with the American public and says that people with pre-existing conditions can't buy insurance. And if they're going to buy it, it's going to be very expensive. That's why they have to buy it before they get sick. That's why they have to buy it when they they don't need it. Otherwise, they're never going to buy it. Now, what do you do with the people who have pre-existing conditions from an early age that are not covered under their parents' plan? I mean, you could come up with a temporary plan uh, that's going to cost a bunch of money that gives people a short window of opportunity who are sick right now. Hey, this is your last chance. You got six months. You got one year. You can buy a plan. Uh, this is what the extra premium is going to be. But we're going to have some kind of reserve that we're going to pay for by cutting government spending someplace else. And we're going to give you a, a window of opportunity to buy insurance with a pre-existing condition. But once that window is shut, then it's too late. Right. Because then if you if you don't have it, you're out of luck. Now, of course, Look, there's going to be charities. People, just, you know, there's, we're a compassionate nation. Particularly doctors. I mean, nobody just dies in America because they don't have the money. People will take care of other people. You know, especially if we can uh, get rid of a lot of the rules and regulations that undermine doctors. If we could, you know, get rid of or have tort reform, so they don't have to spend a fortune on malpractice insurance. If we get a lot of people uh, to not use insurance for routine medical care, if we separate insurance from employment, which is something I've been recommending for a long time, which is a flaw that was created by government. So if we change that so people only buy insurance for catastrophic problems, but that they pay for routine medical care out of pocket, that means it will be much less expensive for doctors to operate their offices. They won't need as many employees. They won't have to waste as much time on paperwork and administration. So they'll have a lot more time for maybe so pro bono work, maybe to operate on poor people for free, which doctors love to do if they have the time to do it. It gives them a lot of personal satisfaction to be able to help people who are in need. I mean, that's really doctors in general want to help people. Sure, they want to make money. right? They invested a lot of time and energy into becoming doctors, and they want to be compensated for that. But they also get a lot of emotional uh, benefit from just helping people, from just being a doctor and being able to take somebody who's sick and make them healthy. I mean, that's probably one of the greatest feelings that you get. Probably nobody uh, gets more personal satisfaction from their job, if you can think of it, than, than a doctor. I mean, I know there's got to be a lot of lows. You know, sometimes people are terminal and there's nothing you can do and you have to deal with that and you have to deal with the, uh, uh, delivering that bad news. You have to deal with the friends and family, but then you've got the highs of being able to cure somebody, being able to take somebody who's sick and in pain and, and, and bring them back to health. So you have a lot of that when you become a doctor and you really can't put a value on that. And so doctors will work for free if they have the time. If we stop dragging them into court all the time for malpractice and and forcing them uh, to spend so much money on defensive medicine and so much money on red tape. And, of course, if we could shrink government and lower the income tax, if we didn't take half of the income that doctors earned. Right. Well, then they would have they wouldn't have to work as much for pay and they could work more for free. But, you know, it's going to take uh, a lot of education to the public to get them to understand this it's so much easier for politicians to just tug on people's heartstrings and talk about how healthcare is a right and people shouldn't have to pay more for health care when they're sick uh, because they can't help being sick even if in some cases a lot of health is a result of personal decisions it's not always people have genetic problems right people are born with some things but there are a lot of people who get sick because they overeat, because they don't exercise, because they don't take care of themselves, because they smoke, they do a lot of bad things. And you know, one of the ways to uh, have a disincentive to do that is well, you know, if you do all this bad stuff, you're gonna be sicker and you're gonna have to spend more on healthcare, right? To try to say that no, we should all spend the same, no matter how we live our lives, that again creates a moral hazard. You know, if you're going to deny yourself the instant gratification. Of pigging out on junk food, if you're going to go to the gym and you're going to work out, right, and you're going to do all those things to stay healthy, then why shouldn't you be rewarded with cheaper health insurance, right? The guy who's just pigging out on junk food, his reward is you know how he feels when eating it. He gets to taste and enjoy all this great food. And he doesn't have to go to the gym. He doesn't have to huff and puff and work up a sweat. He just kicks back by the television set and enjoys leisure. So why can't that guy pay more in health insurance? Right? He can't just demand that, well, you know, I want to pay the same premiums as people who take care of themselves. Right? No, I mean you you gotta you gotta take the good with the bad. Because when the government comes in and tries to to level this out. But it actually creates a greater incentive for people to behave in an unhealthy way. It's almost like um, the other moral hazard in insurance. You'll find that when people have automobile insurance, they drive a little bit more recklessly than when they don't have insurance at all. See, if you don't have insurance, you're like extra careful, you know, especially if the law requires you to have insurance. You're afraid if you get an accident that you could get arrested for not having insurance. Right. So you're you're extra careful. You know, when, you know, you know, you're doing something wrong, you don't want to get stopped, you don't want to get in an accident, so you, you know, you're super careful. But once, when you have insurance, you know, you have a little bit more relief, you're not as worried about getting into a fender bender because, you know, your insurance is going to cover it, right? Now, of course, you know, the insurance companies have the ability to raise your rates if you get into an accident, so you might think, well, I really don't want to get into an accident because then my premium is going to go up. But imagine if Congress passed a law that said no matter how many accidents you have, Your premium can't go up, right? No matter because what you know. Why should they be able to discriminate against bad drivers, right? Why everybody should have the right to have the same auto insurance, no matter how recklessly they drive, right? Well, if they did that, you know what would happen to the amount of accidents in this country? Of course, they'd go through the roof because there'd be no consequence to the insured person of having accidents. If no matter how many he had, he got the same uh, exact insurance rate as the people who never got into an accident at all.
1: Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Europacific Bank at europacbank.com. Europacific Capital and Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.
0: Hi, this is Peter Schiff. And long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals.